Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Expanding Economics. This is Sophia speaking. And this is Andrew. Today, we are taking a brief reprieve from our ad nauseum inflation talk to talk about something that is just as technically intricate and confusing, housing. Now, don't, don't be fooled because a lot of the time, the extremely technical jargon involved in housing, it obfuscates just how important it is to the average person, the average homeowner, and the likes of which of just people, the, the vast majority of people who live in concentrated urban areas of Canada. This is a really big deal and it deserves more recognition in order to understand how to make housing more affordable to the rest of us. And uh, housing really is something that is affecting us all, especially as young people who in a few years coming out of school want to be working and build homes for ourselves. But especially in Canada over the past decade or so, this has become a less, less and less likely outcome for a lot of people. The Canadian housing market has been on an insane exponential upwards trend over the past uh, few decades, especially in the three major urban centers, Montreal, Toronto, and Vancouver. And the big question is, especially over the past few months now that we see the markets taking a downturn, is what's causing these huge price increases. You know, houses went from being on average 300000 to half a million dollars a decade or two ago to being upward over a million, million point five. So what's causing this? Is it an issue of supply and demand or is this a speculative bubble? This is what me and Andrew are going to be discussing today. So Andrew, to start off, I have a question for you. Um, do you believe that housing prices are representative of a speculative bubble or do you think it is constraint a constrained supply? I strongly believe that it is a constrained supply. Like some of the defenders of the idea that it's like a bubble and we don't actually need to build more houses would like bring up the idea that when it comes to housing supply, it's very consistent with what you would see in like the US. I would agree, but I would say that that's a very bad thing because the US has a problem with housing supply in the same way that Canada has a problem with housing supply. And like, if you were to look at like the projections of like the number of jobs in Canada, the, the degree of population growth and people, but both people born in Canada as well as immigration, it becomes pretty clear that an increase in the supply of housing is necessary to keep up with the excess demand that we are currently experiencing. Okay. Yeah, I would agree um, with that point, Andrew. I definitely think that supply is a huge issue, uh, especially in Canada, as we, on a yearly basis, bring in a lot of foreign immigrants. I think the number is roughly 400,000 per year. Uh, yet, despite over 400,000 people per year coming into the country, uh, there's only about 200,000 homes being built. So the numbers don't add up there. And beyond that, we also have, like you said, really strong demand. We have the baby boomer population, which are all homeowners, and they want to stay in their homes. And then you have a huge generation of young adults coming into the workforce, making more money and wanting to start families and buy homes. And those aren't necessarily... Um, lining up. There's a bit of a block from the intergenerational transfer. Also, uh, the access to cheap money, 
means that a lot of people can try and get mortgages and homes, but on these like super low interest rate mortgages, which means that you have these flood of people trying to get the homes, but they can't. And because they can take out these really big mortgages, they can afford to pay more money upfront, which drives the prices up. But I also think the culture shifting towards like people buying homes as investments and then renting them out is also contributing to the problem. One person with a high income and who can afford to take out these loans or get approved for these loans, instead of them buying one house for themselves, they're buying up five rental properties and renting them out. So that takes away from the demand or the supply that is available and you know funnels it all into the hands of one person as opposed to the five people that might have been able to buy those homes. Following on that note, one problem that was kind of that becomes clear is that we're not building enough homes. Um, so why is that? Why can't why can't we just build more homes if the issues supply? Um, yeah, so that gets us into the concept of NIMBYism, which is both bad and pervasive across much of society as a whole. It's the whole it's the whole idea of wanting the culture to stay grounded in your own frame of reference of what it's like, and that often involves like if you live in a like a great place with a great view and people would want to build houses there and make the view slightly worse um you could object to that and um if you have enough money and um you can uh, basically create enough lawsuits you're going to keep that project in the ground and prevent it from ever gaining any traction and that's i think that's a small microcosm of a lot of what we see um, in the present day when it comes to housing, where a lot of present day homeowners are resistant to change in a way such that they're not willing to create housing for other people who might need it. And that drives up the cost of housing and makes housing much less affordable for the rest of us. And uh, just to define our terms here, NIMBYism stands for not in my backyard. And it refers exactly to this uh, People with money living in nice areas, resisting change within their residential areas and using various zoning laws or uh, civil voice procedures in order to stop new housing developments. But they're not just, I think a really important thing to outline is that they're not just stopping housing developments, they're stopping a very specific type of housing development. Um, Andrew, could you explain a little bit more in what type of neighborhoods NIMBYism is most prominent and what sort of things they, they tend to resist? Yeah, so this is the unfortunate part. Like NIMBYism tends to be packed in like the most urban, the most densely populated environments. Um, like these are the these are the environments filled filled to the brim with people and filled to the brim with people that ostensibly um, ostensibly vote and ostensibly tend to be a lot more left wing. But in the context of the the environment they live in and how resistant they are to change. They are unfortunately culturally conservative in this regard and tend to oppose the building of new houses that would actually make it affordable to other people who want to live there. Um, do you think that the term nimbyism can be is solely applied to people? You kind of described it, the people who tend to be more li- vote liberally, but are conservative in, in this sense. But do you think we could apply this term to people who are very outright conservative as well? Yeah, of course. Um, so NIMBYism, I think, I think that NIMBYism is, like the way I would describe it is that NIMBYism is a conservative ideology that belongs to people 
all along the political spectrum where like no no matter where you lie politically you like you would still tend to have this one conservative belief of nimbyism which is unfortunate but it's part of human nature in that we often tend to resist change that we don't like at the expense of other people like like a lot of the time i've had to like actively try to rewire my brain to sort of oppose changes that i normally like it would have been instinctual for me to oppose until I realized that it's wrong. And I've had to like forcefully change that part of myself. Right. I think it's, it takes a lot of effort to basically unlearn the the biases or the instincts that you have to be like, no, I want to keep things that, the way that are good for me and unlearn that and put yourself in the other people's shoes. It's, it takes a lot of, it takes a lot of effort. So you can see where these thought patterns come from really easily. For me, nimbyism, I find is a new term for me. And I find it extremely interesting because you spoke that it's very pervasive in these downtown urban centers. And I would agree. And we'll talk a little bit about uh, these cities uh, in a second. But I think it's also very prominent in more suburban areas, um, especially ones that are generally higher income or have a conservative base or are in kind of green protected areas. So me personally, I'm from a town that's an hour and a half, two hours outside of Toronto, and it's near the Niagara Green Belt. And the town is a historic town and it has a lot of beautiful homes, but it's all single family detached homes. And then there's still a lot of, and the prices of these homes have skyrocketed in the past 10 years upwards 100%. And there's a lot of projects, there's still a lot of plots of land that are free and available and good to build on. But every single time a developer comes in to may build condos, like expensive, nice condos, and people still resist that. Because a big thing they say is, oh, that ruins the character of the town. You know, like this is a, this is an old historic town. And now and they don't want an apartment building. They don't want a condo. They want more, they want more nice historic million dollar homes. So what are your thoughts on this, Andrew, this, this idea of maintaining the character yeah that's that's something that i've had to rewire my brain about like if you if you mention this to me or like if i was part of that neighborhood i have no doubt in my mind that i would have been one of those problematic people who would have been very nimby about trying to oppose like changes in the character of my neighborhood and the only reason why i recognize the error of my ways is because of the amount of research that i've done about the way that this actually like drives up the price of prices of housing and makes this so much more affordable to other people. And I think that's something that people need to reckon with the way that like their own decisions, their own like ideas of what, like the way that certain cultures need to stay the same in order to like keep a sort of sense of antiqueness. I think that a lot of the time that's wrong. And I think that we need to recognize that. I agree. And I think that this um, t- this use of words maintaining the character, I think it says a lot more than just keeping the aesthetic of the town by saying they want to maintain the character. Effectively, what they're saying is, no, we don't want more affordable housing where a young family might move in. We want more people. We want nice, expensive houses where more older, wealthier, conservative people like us can live. I think that's really at the core well, of what it's saying. Yeah, I think it's mostly true, but with one one important distinction where I, I once again, I mentioned 
NIMBYism is a conservative ideology, but it's a conservative ideology that belongs to everyone across the political spectrum, no matter where you claim to lie, unfortunately. Right. And I think that with that, we can lead into discussing the urban centers, because here, the Canadian context, Toronto, Vancouver, Montreal, people do tend, there's a lot of liberal areas where people tend to vote liberally. Yet this phenomenon still occurs. And I think we can tackle, I feel like Montreal needs to be separated slightly because it's a little bit different than Toronto and Vancouver. We can discuss why following that, but let's stick with Toronto and Vancouver for the time being. Two cities that have seen exponential growth in population. Um, They see a lot of immigration and crazy housing prices, some of the most unaffordable cities in the world to live in. Although people pay have really high incomes and pay really big property taxes, and the cities do have the resources to provide shelters and co-op housing for these people. So why isn't it happening? Why are we seeing these crazy high prices? Um, so there are a few things here. Obviously, a very large contributor is the NIMBY streak that we keep talking about that sort of unfortunately plays a large role in this. Part of the reason why it's so important to build houses in the first place is because of the rapid increases in demand, largely due to both population growth and immigration. I think it's very good that we tend to accept a lot of people uh, to come through our borders. And I think that that's, that's, that results in an increase in demand, which means that like we need to increase the number of houses that we have accordingly. But cities like Toronto and Vancouver constantly have housing develop or condo and apartment and high-rise developments being built. But how come that's not solving the supply issue? All right. So there, there are two things at play here. One is just the types of houses being built. Um, this is a, another problematic phenomenon where the specific houses that are tight that are being built don't do not necessarily house the people do not properly house the people that are coming in. They're more like specifically targeted to higher income uh, people who a can afford it and B tend to tend to be able to have enough people to. All right, fine. I, I don't have a good answer to this question. <laughs> That's all right. I think, yeah. um, I think I can kind of pick up on what you started with there. Um, about it's not the right type of housing being built. And that's a really important point because you're right. I read some of the city planning for Toronto and Vancouver, uh, specifically Toronto, just to kind of when I was doing my research. And the problem is with these urban centers like that are fast developing and relatively new is that the cities still need to attract people to them and they're aiming to make them globally desired sought after kind of brand name cities the people developing toronto want to put toronto on the map they want to make it the next big place like a place give it a name you know because it's a new city a hundred years ago toronto was not the, the big um metropolis it is today and to do that to make a city uh globalized and urban center that attracts especially because canada wants to attract foreign investment in for and immigrants they need to, they need to make it attractive to the quote unquote creative class and 
that means like the upper middle class. Yes, exactly. The upper middle class, young creatives working in tech, highly educated in a knowledge based economy. That's for, for that's how they view the future, and that's how they are visualizing growth. So that means taking cities, and this is where kind of the issue of gentrification comes up. It means taking the parts of Toronto that before we're manufacturing based and maybe more working class and totally redeveloping them into kind of your like Soho chic cafe, overpriced coffee shops, nice apartment lofts, you know? Like specifically targeted to a certain type of person. Exactly. And that attracts that type of person and it becomes this young hit place, but it doesn't make it an affordable place for anyone else. So you still get a huge group of people who aren't able to buy a home. And yeah. yeah. A lot of the time that's at the expense of, that's at the expense of like the total welfare of society as a whole. Like one of the things that Professor Lander, um, I did a podcast with him a while back, but one of the things that he mentioned in class that sort of stuck out to me is that a lot of the time policymakers don't make policy to increase the total welfare of society they do it to like like satiate the whims of their voters and sometimes their voters want the wrong things i think a lot of the time the reason why canada is only allowing in those specific types of immigrants is just so that policymakers can satiate the whims of like older voters that are resistant to change and only want people to come in that they can identify with, which is very similar to the phenomenon of NIMBYism that we keep talking about. Right. Um, And to add on to this note of policy, another contributing factor, I guess, and this is relevant specifically to these urban centers where the prices become so high and are targeted towards the upper middle class, a little bit older, already has a nice income, is that in Canada, there's something called, there's an incentive for first-time home buyers, which is a policy that when you're first time buying a home, you only have to put a 5% down payment as opposed to 10%. But that caps off at a certain home price. I think the home price is like half a million but how, in these centers that are targeted towards the upper middle class, um, the home prices are exceeding that. So that kind of blocks anyone who might be this first time home buyer, first generation home buyer out of those areas. So it's one more way to say, to like kind of put some red tape around what type of people are allowed to get housing here. Part of the reason that some argue the prices in Vancouver and Toronto have skyrocketed the way they have is because of a foreign investment. It was really easy for foreign buyers to come in and buy property and build properties um, and then rent them out and create an income that way. And that was a phenomenon that was occurring a lot. And, um, you know, when you have foreign money coming in, buying properties and then renting them out, obviously that takes away from supply or the opportunities for Canadians to buy. So recently they put a huge tax on foreign buying in that way. So it's going to stop it. But there's a bit of an issue there because a lot of housing developments are also funded by foreign buyers. So you kind of see the the issue here. Yeah. So that that also takes up um, a lot of supply for the sake of those buyers. Right. And do you think that 
stopping foreign buyers or foreign investors is kind of another form of nimbyism? Or do you think it's this is a good move that might help the issue? I think I think there's a little bit of both, weirdly enough. Mm-hmm. I think that um, like trying to stop all of it, that might be counterproductive to the total welfare of this society as a whole. Um, but I think that if it's like there's a there's a point where the thumb trying to like use those houses as their own assets that becomes harmful to the actual people that want to live there after which case a more regulation might be needed but also you can just build more houses and that would also help a lot of the solution that we've been posing is um to build more houses to increase supply. However, I think that that may be slightly easier said than done. This is the one thing I took from the BMO Capital Markets <laughs> podcast that I kind of did agree with is that finding skills people and construction people and funding these projects, especially in Canada where the winters are pretty harsh and you only have a few months of the year to work on them, is very difficult. So, it's easy for us to say, oh, the government of Canada should build another $200,000 per year, but that's assuming that we're not already at our building capacity. Oh, so like there's um, like there's a, there's a small, like there's like the, when it comes to the number of houses being built, there's a certain point of diminishing returns that's greater for Canada than it is in other countries that don't have as harsh winters. Exactly. And who have more skilled trades and construction people. Basically, there's a production frontier and we might be maxed like at our max. So what kind of things is there to do to solve our housing problems when the answer isn't just increased supply. Yeah. And I guess that's um, a case where trying to do more regulation when it comes to foreigners trying to use up houses as their own assets, that might be a helpful solution. Um, I think also focusing on what kind of houses we're building, right? There's perhaps we're at our capacity for building, but there's a lot of single family homes being plopped up right next to each other in suburban areas. Maybe the answer is more condos and apartment buildings and semi-detached homes, um, having more than one family residing in one residence, which not yeah. everyone likes the idea of. But. Yeah, but we, sometimes, sometimes hot, good, hot takes are good for society. Right. <laughs> um, okay, so on to that. No, I think this is a good place to bridge into um, what I mentioned earlier, and that is why Montreal is a little bit of a separate situation from Toronto and Vancouver. While Montreal, the cost of living in Montreal has increased in the last year or so, generally it's considered to be a pretty affordable city relative to the former. And there's a lot of different reasons as to why people think that's the case, but um, anyone who's living in Montreal knows the housing market is a lot healthier. Do you know any of the reasons why, Andrew? It doesn't have anything to do with government regulation. Um, a bit along the lines of like zoning laws. Oh, so like zoning laws are more relaxed? Yes, kind of. <laughs> okay, so it's, it's partly due to less regulation in, with respect to where people can build. Does it have any, is, are there any geographical reasons? Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> I think um I think 
I'll just give you a bit of a hint. We've been talking a lot about what kind of houses can be built. Oh, so like, do they, are there a lot more apartments and exactly. that type of housing? Yeah, exactly. Montreal is famous for its triplex division of um, living. And that's very good. Which is very good. Um, though the their, their zoning laws don't allow you to build over a certain height in some areas. So that prevents people from complaining about, you know, the skyline being ruined or shadows or any of that. But at the same time, it does allow for these triplexes in which one single family home might get broken up into four apartments, uh, which drastically reduces the amount of urban space you need and creates for a pretty healthy distribution of people, I think. Do you agree? Yeah, that sounds, that sounds about right. Yeah. Although, despite this setup, Montreal still does have, has its own issues and its own form of nimbyism. Um, and I think, and a homelessness crisis as well. And I think that's something we see a lot in um, right here at McGill in the Milton Park region. Um, you see, unfortunately, a community of Indigenous peoples who are on the street, and there is a shelter, but it doesn't provide um, it doesn't provide twenty four hour shelter. It just provides food, and in the cold months, it opens up due to lack of funding. And you see a lot of different for anyone from McGill listening, a lot of different actions taken to try and push them away. Like I'm thinking um, how they put the fence up on the corner of park and Milton in order. So, so there's like this empty plot of land. So they're not seeing there. Uh, so I feel like that's a pretty, sh- another form of nimbyism that is pretty pervasive. Um, what do you think? Yeah, that sounds about right. I guess that's where the city of Montreal could spend, put more effort. You know, it's got the type of housing down, but it could still think about how we could dedicate more resources to helping um, these groups of people. Yeah, and not being so intense with the policing of them. Yeah, that's one aspect of maybe that's just inherently human nature to want to like both resist change and also avoid people that feel foreign to us. And that's something that we're always going to need to overcome in order to help people. Shifting subjects a little bit into what's happening right now with the housing market uh, for those who aren't following, I mean, all markets are down, the stock markets, um, interest rates are going up, which causes people to save more and invest less, which could be a problem for housing because people don't want to invest in new developments right now while interest rates are up. And while interest rates are up, mortgages also become more expensive. So we see a big dec- a big increase in housing uh, inventories and big decrease in listings or purchases or any of these things. So overall, I think the housing market has decreased about 20% in the past month or so. It's different um, on a city basis. And I think this kind of um, goes into the debate of was this all just a speculative bubble or how much of the price increases was supply and demand and how much of it was speculative. I think, I think uh, within the last few years, it's fair to say that a great degree of it was actually speculative um, considering all the sort of shocks that we've had um, from the initial, our initial bout of pandemic lockdowns to um, other supply shocks um, regarding labor supply or China's lockdowns mm-hmm. or the war in Ukraine that all probably definitely had a non-negligible effect on housing costs. Yeah. Uh, I think it was, there's definitely been a lot of speculation too. While I agree that a lot of the housing prices are 
based on fundamentals, lack of supply, too much demand caused by demographic factors like population. I still like it's hard to justify like a hundred percent increase in the house over the course of a decade with these factors. And it's also hard to justify a minus 20% decrease, which is on par with the type of decreases you see with like technology stocks right now, solely due to the the increase in um, interest rates. I mean, interest rates play a huge factor, but there's still a lot of people with like five-year fixed mortgages, um, you know, and if perhaps if homes, home value was more accurate to the, its actual home prices were more accurate to its actual value, then two to 3% interest rate increase might not affect it as much if you're following. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I think there's speculation has definitely played a large role in where we are now in housing, but it's, it would be wrong to f- solely attribute that um, to a housing bubble. I do think that um, NIMBYism and housing supply, those are pretty constant in terms of how and why housing costs usually go up and they, they are a problem and we need to build more houses. Yeah, and uh, s- adjust our zoning laws and policy regulation as to who can buy a home under what conditions and um, what kind of homes can be built. So that we're not just welcoming in people that seem familiar to us. Exactly. And I think if these problems aren't solved, then the speculation will only continue to occur because if home buying is locked off to a select group of people who can just kind of throw their money around and use housing as part of their portfolio of assets, then that's where speculation occurs because now housing is an investment, a long-term investment for them, not like a technology stock would be not a home where you live and build your family. So um, and nimbyism and policy definitely influences this. Is there a possibility of overshooting supply? Let's suppose like the production constraints were lifted. We could build another half a million homes a year. Uh, everyone stopped being a NIMBY and they were like, go for it, put it wherever you want. Is that possible? That's possible, but well, two things. One is that that's unlikely. And the other is that I don't think is that big of a problem. So going into the first one, obviously NIMBYism is pervasive and it will always be pervasive in human society. And it'll always be an uphill battle because we're going to have to sort of try to like reconfigure human nature. Um, And that's, that's something that you can never get rid of. But moving on to the second point, why it's not that big of a deal. So two reasons. So like in any basic economics class is worth its salt. You would learn the concept of how price ceilings might lead to surpluses where the firms don't receive that much profit and also consumers aren't willing to pay for as much supply as there is. And the reason why firms don't really earn that much profit is because they can't actually charge more, even if like consumers would be willing to pay for more. That's, that's not present if there were, if there was a, like an increase in supply to the point where there's excess supply, like firms can charge whatever cost they want on the housing. And if there's like a limited demand, then firms will just like raise their prices appropriately. And like, they'll be able to build whatever houses people need. And secondly, if we were to go back to the foreign assets thing where like foreigners might use their houses as assets that could very easily compensate for the excess supply. 
And then shifting on to the demand side, um, in the beginning of this episode, I outlined that there's pretty strong demand for housing. And that's one of the reasons why people argue the prices aren't speculative because they are backed by this huge group of people coming into the housing market uh, with generally good enough incomes to afford it. But do we think that in the following, say, decade or generation, two generations, a lot of demand is driven by preferences and these generations' preferences are changing. Uh, So I'm thinking perhaps our generation, the one before us, will want completely different things. We'll want to live maybe more sustainably in a smaller place. We'll want to live... I'm not really sure if people are going to want to live in urban centers or more remotely because we have the ability to work remotely now. Yeah, the the pandemic has sort of accelerated trends towards remote work. Exactly. And so I think it's really difficult to say like, okay, if we were to lift the production constraints and build... Oh, I, I, have, an, I have another thing about yeah. like excess supply. Another like reason why it's not that much of a problem is that we could just boost immigration and allow more people to come through our borders to like sort of address of course, of course yeah. Supply. Yeah. and that's going to need to happen in the next few years as we have more climate refugees canada's like population is still pretty sparse so we definitely have the ability to do that um so yeah that's a great point i agree uh yeah. just shifting back to demand so let's say we can increase supply however we want it's kind of hard to know in what way we should do that. What, where's the demand? Where's the preference going to be? Because I can't tell what's going to happen, if, what, what people are going to want. And I don't think anyone really can. Yeah. But then like the, the first step to figuring out is being willing to admit where you don't know things and where you don't fully understand them. And that's when we can begin a process of gradually getting better at understanding to wrap things up, um, Andrew, maybe we can um, all both pose what we think might happen next with the housing market. <laughs> um, I think that housing prices are going to continue to go up and we're going to continue to have a lack of supply. Um, interesting. I w- partially agree with you. I think in the long run, housing prices will continue to go up and there will be a lack of supply. But I think in the short to medium run, we're going to see them continue to fall for the next few months and then maybe level out a little bit for the next year or two post knock on wood, no recession, mm-hmm. but you know, yeah. um, that's a factor. But in the long run, we'll see them climb again. Andrew, is there anything you would like to add some final remarks? Um, I think regardless of where you are and how you feel about this issue, I would highly recommend um, doing more research and coming to your own conclusions about where we are with regards to housing and how to fix it. Exactly. Especially as I'm guessing a lot of our listeners are our age and university students, especially as you start thinking about where you're going to live and what kind of environment you want to live in and what kind of resident you want to be in your community. That's really important to understand these issues um, so we can all kind of rewire our brains and think more inclusively. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Well, this has been the Expanding Economics Podcast and you'll hear from us next time. 